For sure it is. Hello? Hey. See, this just confirms that I was not cool enough to be out on the stage yet. So, good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're here. We're going to get through this together. Will you pray for me? I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we're starting a series, like Jen talked about, called uh, Come Together. And uh, the whole idea is what would happen in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and just in the world if we just walked across the street with the gospel. If we started taking Jesus a little more seriously when he gives us these commands and we just walked across the street. You see, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, He's asked this, and it says this, starting in verse 36. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The second most important thing about life, second only to loving God completely, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that even though he's asked what is the greatest commandment, he goes on to say what the second greatest commandment is because he ties these two things together. Almost like you cannot love God with your entire heart, soul, mind, and strength unless you love your neighbor as yourself. And so here is the bottom line truth for the day. The only thing that we want to be walking out with today, hopefully, is just this. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. I know that's shocking, you know, but it's just true. It's just this bottom basic truth of Christianity. We need to love our neighbors. When I was 21... I went on a canoeing trip with three of my best friends, and it was there that I came the closest to death that I've ever been, and I saw what it meant to love uh, your neighbor as yourself. So maybe the death part was a little bit of an exaggeration, but let me tell you what happened. I went to Algonquin National Park in Canada when I was 21. It was the year before my senior year in college, and we just wanted to go and take a trip. We were just away from it all for a couple days, and so we drove north for a long time, And if you ask directions from me towards Algonquin National Park, I'll just say go north. That's all I know about it because I was in the backseat the whole time. But we got up there, and I remember being very, very, very unbelievably unprepared for this trip. The night before, when I started packing, the night before we left, when I started packing, I was packing all my stuff together. And Emily, who was then my girlfriend, said to me, Adam, don't you think you should take some warmer clothes? I said, Emily, it's August, and we're backpacking. You want to keep your backpack light, you know, trying to show how much of an outdoorsman I was. You want to keep your backpack light, and plus I got my sleeping bag, so I'm totally fine, you know. Uh, On the first night, I had to borrow sweatpants and a sweatshirt. And when we got the tent out, uh, we were putting the tent up, which I was responsible for bringing. We got the tent out, and my friends were like, hey, Adam, where's the rain fly? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? It's not in there. And so we had to take the tarp that was meant for the bottom of the the tent and put it on the top so that rain didn't come in because in August it is cold and rainy in Canada. I'm convinced it's cold and rainy in Canada always. And so if you go up there, bring a coat. Okay, that's my advice for you. Uh, But when we we spent the whole weekend not getting rain 
you know, put on us from the top because we put the tarp on top of us, but rain was seeping into the bottom, and so we were cold and rainy uh, and wet the whole week because one of us forgot the rain fly. I still can't remember who on the trip did that, but we were on the way back from the trip, and there's this little one-and-a-half-lane road, this, like, insanely long but small road that got you back into the wilderness where we had unloaded our canoe and we had, we had gone um, and we were driving, and we hadn't seen anybody that day. In fact, when we were driving in, we didn't see anybody on that road. And so we're driving, and we're, you know, going at a decent speed because there's no one on this road. It's just us, and there's, it's a one-and-a-half-lane road. We're going to be totally fine. And then in the distance, I see a six-wheeled death truck coming towards us at a speed which is irresponsible at best, okay? And so this truck's coming past us, and I think we're not going to fit. Like, the two of us cars are not going to fit because we're in a Honda Civic. We've done our part to get past on this road together. You're in a monster truck. You're being selfish in this moment, you know? And so they're coming towards us. On the left side of us is a mountain. On the right side of us is still a mountain, but the cliff part of it. So it's just down. And I'm in the passenger seat, and this truck's coming towards us. They get the mountain as a buffer. We get a cliff as certain doom. And so we're driving past it, and I remember thinking as we're passing it, like, slow down. You know, like, we could slow down a little bit. But I don't know if male competitiveness kicked in for the, my friend who was driving, but we just kept going at a full speed, like, we're going to make this. And so as we passed the truck, I went... You know, because that helps. So I just get skinny. You know, and we uh, we passed the truck and we made it past. And then I thought, oh, that's great. That was you know some excitement. And then all of a sudden we just went boop, and we're just driving kind of like this. And I'm like, oh no, this is not good. And I remember thinking, kind of eerily peacefully, this is how I die goodbye, cruel world, you know? And so we're just like slowly teetering down a cliff and our car just kind of, it's then that my friend is like, I should stop. You know, I should slow down, but he didn't hit the brakes. He just kind of coasted. And so we're slowly going down this cliff and then we just stop and then we stop. And I see up in front, a tree, a half tree that was broken off, but it was holding our whole car. And I promise you, this is not an exaggeration, because the only thing that we knew how to do when we got out of the car was take a picture, because we were dumb college students. And so we took this picture. Yep. We took this picture. And if you can see in the top right of that is the half tree that genuinely saved our lives. Like, that's what caught us. Otherwise... We're goners. There's no other trees. I can see the river that formed this mountain that was supposed to be the end of us, but I love that tree. I didn't go down to try to kiss it because I, you know, tempted fate with that cliff once. I wasn't going to do it again. But uh, we're, we're standing there, and we stood around for a good half hour, as men do, when they're in a problem that they don't know how to solve. We didn't even think to ask for help. We just started talking about how we could solve this ourselves. And I mean, I know I'm pretty strong, but we weren't just going to try to just pick the car up off the cliff. But we're like, we got to do something. There was no cell phone service. We were a good 12 to 15 miles until there was a paved road. And so we're like, okay, we got to split up. Two of us have to stay here and two of us have to go uh, and start a walk back towards civilization. And then a second car pulled up. 
Again, these are the two cars we saw the whole trip. They happen to be on the same time in, you know, one after the other. And this car pulled up, and we're a little bit skeptical because the first car sent us almost to our doom, and so we don't know what the second car is going to do. We don't like Canada at this moment, you know. And so this car pulls up, and he just stops. And I remember him saying to us, got your car stuck there, eh? <laughs> to which, to which Garinger, my friend, responded, they really talk like that. And I was like, be cool, man. Like, chill. And so... Uh, the, this, this Canadian guy gave up the rest of his day. The rest of his day. He drove us all back into town. He's like, your car will be fine. Just come with me. Um, he got us some food. He made sure that we called this certain towing company because he knew this certain towing company. And he knew that they weren't going to overcharge us and they weren't going to ask us to do anything crazy. And he followed the tow truck company back with us to make sure the tow truck company did what they said they would do. I mean, he was the nicest Canadian man in the history of the world. And actually, maybe he's just a Canadian person, but I don't know. He was nice to us in this moment. And so he followed but he gave up his whole day until our car was pulled off the cliff and he said we'll test it like we don't necessarily have to to get any work done just test it and see if you can drive it home and it worked and he was like okay you guys be safe on your way home like, let us let us give you some money let us give you some something do you want all of the stuff that we have because you can have it he's like oh no i'm just glad you guys are safe be safe on your way home good luck guys and he just left I've never seen that man again, but I'll never forget him. Because when someone loves their neighbor as themselves, it sticks with you. And we have this command to love our neighbors. And so again, the bottom line truth for the day is we need to love our neighbors. In Luke chapter 10, an expert of the law stands up. And he's trying to test Jesus. And he, he asks the same question that was asked of him in Matthew 22. And he says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even see fit. And Luke, Luke doesn't see fit to break it up into two different commands. It's just he adds on, and your neighbor as yourself. And so the expert of the law who's trying to test Jesus then asks, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus re- responds with a familiar story, the parable Uh, or the story of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to Luke 10, 30 through 37, it says this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. 
Go and see and find and heal the needs of the people around you. Now, a couple of things stick out to me about this passage. It's not just the two men that pass by, one being a priest, the religious elite, one being a Levite, which would have been considered the, the common man, but it was a Samaritan. It was a Samaritan, the one who would have you know, been equivalent to the lowest of the low socially back then that was considered the neighbor to the man because he went above and beyond. He went beyond to make sure that this guy got full restoration from the need that he was in. He paid for the extra, the extra expenses at the end. He loved his neighbor, and that made him a neighbor to the man. And so Jesus is painting this picture that your neighbor is anyone who is in need or anyone who you can help meet the need of. And so really, your neighbor is anyone. Your neighbor is anyone that you can see and interact with and help in any way and who you can show the kingdom of God to by the way that you live your life open-handed and generously and standing on truth and unafraid of what the world might throw at you. Anyone that you can be Jesus' representation to, that is your neighbor. I don't know what you think about when you hear this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I oftentimes, when I read it, think through it and think, oh, I would definitely stop. Like, I would be the Good Samaritan. Let's leave aside the fact that most often in my life, I've been in need of a Good Samaritan, as is evidenced by my Canada story, but I always put myself in the hero position in this story. Like, of course I would stop. There's nothing, there's no way I would pass by somebody who was beaten and groaning on the, on the side of the road and not help them. There's no way I would. And so a couple of psychologists set out to, to test this. John Darley and Daniel Bastan contrived a situation where they would mimic this situation the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what they did is they took a group of students from, uh, from Princeton Theological Seminary. So these are seminary students, and they told them to prepare a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. They said, use this text to prepare a talk for colleagues and for professors. We'll put you in this room, and then we'll tell you when we're ready for you, you're going to come over, and you're going to teach on this very famous passage of Jesus. So these are seminary students teaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. What, Dan, what uh, Darley and Bassan were going to do was put someone who was an actor, but who looked like someone who was beaten and groaning and sick on the sidewalk between the two buildings that these seminary students would have to walk on to go and deliver their talk on the Good Samaritan. To, add, to make it more interesting and to just get better research, they, uh, they asked a question. They wanted to know why these seminary students went to seminary in the first place. Was it out of an inherent desire to help people and to serve people and to be good in the world? Or was it for some other contributing factor, social, whatever, family, whatever it might be? And then the third factor they, they added was a time component. They told half the students that were preparing this talk that they had plenty of time. They had plenty of time to go from where they were preparing their message to where they had to deliver their message. And they told the other half that they were late and that a room full of people were waiting on them to deliver this talk. And I don't know what you think the number one contributing factor would be for people. But most people when surveyed thought that those who went to seminary with an inherent desire to help people would be most likely to stop. That makes sense, right? 
that wasn't even close to the number one contributing factor. The number one contributing factor is the same one that it probably is for you and for me. It was whether or not the seminary students thought they had enough time or not. And when seminary students preparing a message on the good Samaritan are presented with the exact same situation, they stopped 63% of the time when they thought they had enough time. They only stopped 10% of the time when they thought they were running late. And now these are seminary students telling this story where Jesus says love and care for your neighbor, and they walk straight past because they thought they had to get somewhere and that this would be an interruption to what they were doing. And that struck me. Because in our community, in our day-to-day, most likely and most often, we're not going to run across somebody that is beaten up on the side of the road. You might, that might happen. I'm not saying that that won't ever happen, but that's not probably the need that you're going to come across most often in your day-to-day. Most often, it's going to be a lot more subtle, and it's going to look a lot more like you could just walk straight past it because you have X, Y, Z to do in your day. I think that if we're going to love our neighbors, we need to pay attention. We have to pay attention and just open our eyes. The problem wasn't that the Princeton Seminary students were more morally corrupt than any of the rest of us. They just thought that there was a group of people waiting for them, and that pressure blinded them to what was happening right in front of them. They didn't even see the reality that they were being the opposite of what Jesus commands us to be in this story that they were about to teach on. They just got the same blinders we did, which is our schedule. We have to open our eyes and pay attention and see where the kingdom of God is necessary in a moment. And you could be that representation in a moment. I was getting coffee with a friend this past week. It was on Monday or Tuesday, I can't remember. But we were getting coffee and we were talking. We were talking about uh, life and church and just how our families were doing. And he was telling me a story. And then right dead stop in the middle of his story, he looks up past me and he says, oh, no, no, no. No, 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 don't do that. Oh, no. And then he stands up, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. You know, like, I don't know what's happening right now, but my back is turned to the whole situation. And so I, as casually as I can, turn around, you know, trying to be real sly. I'm like, what's up, you know? And so I look back, and I see there's a family that's frustrated because, as happens sometimes in the mornings, you get off to a rough start, and everything is frustrating. And then one little thing compounds with another little thing, and then it's just frustration after frustration. And you're starting to scream at each other, and you don't know why you're screaming at each other, but you're just frustrated. And that's where this family was in this moment. And they were yelling at each other, and there were little ones. And my friend was so burdened by it. He just looked at him, and he's standing up in this coffee shop and talking to me. And I'm like, man, there's like six other people here. Like, everybody's looking at you right now, <laughs> you know, but it doesn't matter. And he's saying to me, I wish, I wish I could do something. I wish I could just sit down with them and talk and, and just get to the core of what's going on today because you don't have to be this frustrated right now. That's what I want to tell him. You don't have to be this frustrated. I don't know what's going on, but let me help you in some way so that you're not this upset in this moment. And I think he's just talking, you know, ideologically. Like, like it, yeah, it would be good if we could solve that, if we could, you know, sit them down and have a counseling session with them and just talk back and forth and see if we could help solve any of the stress in their life. And I'm just sitting there kind of dumbfounded, like, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a good idea. We should definitely 
do something like that if we ever meet these people again and get to a relationship where they would let us talk to them like that. But I'm, I'm thinking that's impossible. Like, this is just a reality that's going to happen today. And then my friend walks away to the counter, and I think it's just over and done with, and he's going to get a box for his leftover food. But then he just walks away, and I don't know what's going on, but he's heading in the direction of the bathroom, so I have a guess, you know? And, uh, and then I, I hear the cashier tell that family, oh, don't worry about it. That gentleman that just walked away, he got it for you. And let me tell you that, that my friend didn't solve all their problems, but he definitely unwound the tension of the moment. And that frustration turned to gratitude, which turned to patience. And they were just able to have a morning together where there wasn't screaming and shouting. There was just food and, and fun in that moment. And, and I, I got it. Like, I, I saw, oh my goodness, I would have missed it. Because my back was turned and my eyes were closed. And I, I just wasn't open to what was happening in that moment, but my friend was. And he showed me that loving your neighbor doesn't have to be this monumental, huge thing where you have to take somebody who's beaten and on the side of the road and go put them in an inn and take them to the hospital. Sometimes it's a simple gesture that costs $7 and just a willingness to say, you know what? I don't know what else happened in your day, but let this be a good thing that happens. And that small representation of who Jesus is to the world begins to make ripples in eternity. Sometimes you don't have to move heaven and earth to make a difference for heaven on earth. You just have to be willing to participate in what's happening right in front of you. The other thing that we need to to realize, and, and this is one of those things that like, I'm really telling myself here too. Okay, and so this is not like a, I am in any way better than, this is like a, sometimes I feel like God has me teach out of his word because I'm too stubborn and bullheaded to get his truth unless I spend hours with it. And so this is where my stubbornness of excuses meets the truth of his word, and it just wrestles in me. And so here's the other part of it. We need to take Jesus seriously. Love your neighbor as yourself, Period. There is no qualification to that. There is no extra definition to that. There is just this truth that says, love your neighbor. And while it's good, it is very good that we go and we love all of our neighbors. And while, yes, it's true that that's meant to communicate on very, very broad terms that our neighbors are anybody that we come in contact with, like I said in the beginning, anybody that has need and anybody whose need that we can meet, that that's our neighbor. While that's true, it's also true of our neighbor, of the person who we reside next to, our literal, physical, next-door neighbor. While it's good to go on mission trips, and it's good to serve at Threads, and it's good to go to Helping Hands, and it's good to do all these other things, that is very good. We should never, ever stop doing that. In fact, we should probably do it more often. The command to love your neighbor is not paused on your way to that place or your way home from that place. And so the the banner over your home is love your neighbor. And when you are at your home, that's where you're supposed to do that most often. It's in your whole life, as you're coming and as you're going, you're to love your neighbor. And so today, everybody's going to leave with with a magnet. This magnet, can you see this magnet? 
Oh, this magnet. And in the middle, it just says, love your neighbor. And around it, there's eight squares. And those eight squares just represent the homes that surround your home. And the question is, can you fill in the names of your neighbors? Household name is, is sufficient, but extra credit is everybody that lives in the house. If you're, you know, an extra credit sort of person, I usually just got by, but that's okay. Uh, but could you write down in these boxes the names of the people who live around you? And could you just start praying for them? And here's the truth. This is hard sometimes. It's really hard for me sometimes because I am not I am not good at going and meeting people. I am not an extrovert by any definition of the word. And so, like, God has to hit me over the head with something like he did this past week in the coffee shop for me to get, like, talking to people is okay. You know, like, you need to go and meet people. And so I've known that this was going to happen for months. In fact, I helped design and make these. And I still could not fill this out halfway I could make it up, but it would not be right. (laughs) I still couldn't even get halfway done. And so don't beat yourself up if you're not there yet. But a commitment to saying, I want to do this. I want to pray for my neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. That'll start to change things. And now listen, this is not, I'm not saying I'm not saying that you leave here today and you go to all your neighbors and you knock on their door and you say, hello, neighbor, I'm here to love you as myself. (laughs) Don't do that. That would be weird. People would talk. Okay, that's strange. Don't do that. But just represent Jesus with your family in your home. Just be generous. And when you're having a cookout, make extra food and tell them honestly, hey, we have some extra. If you want to come over and have dinner tonight, we've got it covered. Or shovel snow for them. If it ever snows in Ohio again, shovel some snow. Or perhaps you could take down their garbage can and just say, hey, I take my garbage can out at this time every week. Do you want me to get yours? Because that would not be a big deal at all for me. I would love to do that. Whatever it is for you, just start to be more open-handed and generous and unlock some doors and just let the fences drop down. Not because, not because your neighbors are your Jesus project that you're trying to check off some list of conversion and you're trying to get them to know. But because your neighbors are your neighbors. And Jesus said, love your neighbor, period. There is no other qualification. There needs to be no other motivation than Jesus said, do this, and this will work towards the end of what he's trying to do on earth. If we are generous and we are kind and we show people what his life looks like, they'll start to see it. There's a... So the question is, who are your neighbors? How much could you fill out that magnet? Like I said, I wouldn't even get halfway done. I hope that you're, uh, I hope that you're way off to a way better start than me. But there's a pretty famous quote that says, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. St. Francis of Assisi, kind of. And the reason I put kind of in parentheses right there is because the earliest uh, attribution to St. Francis of Assisi with that quote is in 1990, which is just a short 700 years after St. Francis of Assisi died. So he probably maybe said something kind of like that, uh, but maybe not that exactly. What he actually did say in the year 1221 was this, 
love one another. As the Lord says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And let them show their love by the works that they do for each other, according as the apostle says, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. It is not quite as memorable, but it is just as true. The problem with the first quote is that it kind of downplays the importance of the words that you'll say. And it kind of makes it seem like you don't have to tell your story. You don't have to mention Jesus all that often. That The thing that's more important are the actions that you take. And it's true. The actions that you take are important. Your actions should not contradict the words that you say you live your life by. But it is important, and I think St. Francis of Assisi would agree that it's important to use words because he himself was a preacher, a well-known preacher, a preacher known for going to places where people were and talking to them and using creative and and unique ways to preach the gospel. He wouldn't just stick to uh, liturgies and homilies from back in the day. He would try to communicate the gospel in ways that people would understand. And so St. Francis of Assisi would say it's very important to use words. And so I'll say this. When necessary, use words. And this is just a reminder. Because sometimes we can convince ourselves that, that they'll get Jesus by osmosis almost. <laughs> They'll just see Jesus in my life, and hopefully they'll know that that's Jesus that's driving me to do that and whatever. Maybe. But why be afraid? Why be ashamed? Why be worried about talking about who Jesus is and what he's done for you? I get it. It can be embarrassing or it can be nerve-wracking at times. But when necessary, use words. Because when your actions start to open doors and, and start questions, like, why would you do that? Why do you always make more food when you cook out and invite me over? Why do you do that? Use words. Talk about who Jesus is in your life. Tell your story of grace and why you're generous. Because you found life. You found life in Jesus. And he rescued you when you were nowhere and you were nobody. And he brought you to full life. And that generosity knows no ends. And so I'm trying to be more generous because of a Jesus like that. How unbelievable would it have been for me and my friends after we were leaving Canada to get back on the road, go down the road a couple hours, see another group of dumb college guys off the side of a cliff and think, oh, good luck, losers, and kept going. Like it would have been despicable at best, but that would be unbelievable. And yet sometimes with the gospel, we do the same thing. We believe Jesus has rescued us from a a pit of despair, and we're afraid to tell that story to people who are hanging in a pit of despair, and their lives are full of loneliness, and they just need somebody willing to talk to them. And so when necessary, use words. Talk about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life and the change that he's made in your life. Because we're not going to argue, debate, point, doctrine, ideology, theology. We are just going to get to tell people this is my experience with Jesus. He made me patient when I was angry. He broke me free when I was an addict. He made me generous when I was stingy. I would be nobody but for the grace of God and but for Jesus. And so when necessary, use words and tell your story and pray that God would open the doors to those stories. Will you pray with me?
Father God, we are astounded at what you do in our lives. We are blown away that you make us whole again. And we just want to love you more and more each day. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. On your way out, you're going to get this magnet. And I don't know what your next step is. But in this moment, if you follow Jesus and you're ready, would you just sing these words out wholeheartedly and just tell him, God, with everything I am, I'll be about what you're about. I surrender everything I am and I'm about what you're about. And if you don't, if you've never confessed Jesus, if you don't know who Jesus is, and you're like, I just, I want, I want life. I want to be more generous. I want to be more kind. I want to change. They come find one of us today. And we would love to talk with you about that. Because Jesus takes us no matter where we are, and he moves us in a better direction. So in these next few minutes, would you just sing and think about and pray about and be ready to join Jesus in what he's doing?